Hey everyone, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Today we're going to be discussing Knives Out, the 2019 film written and directed by Ryan Johnson. Uh, this is a bad film to get spoiled if you haven't seen it. It's it's very, uh, it's a mystery film, so please watch it before listening to this. Uh, we don't want to spoil anything for you. So John, what is Knives Out about? Well Mike, Knives Out introduces the world to the next great action hero, Marta Cabrera. This young, attractive nurse has her life turned upside down when her boss is murdered. Now she's in a fight for her life against the forces of fate that are closing in around her. Watch as she sabotages police investigations, leads a high-speed car chase, and keeps her pursuers guessing at every turn. Yes, the new John McClane is here in Knives Out. <laughs> yes, I mean, it is funny thinking of her as an action star and being chased by Captain America. She might be a villain. I don't know. That's great. <laughs> Welcome to this film like could be your Captain life. Welcome again to This Film Could Be Your Life, a movie podcast where uh, two friends take the films that they love way too seriously. Like I said, this week we're going to be discussing Knives Out. Knives Out came out in 2019. It was written and directed by Ryan Johnson. Uh, Ryan Johnson has had a pretty recent career. Uh, he had his big breakout film in 2005. It was called Brick. He then made mm. Brothers Bloom in 2008, Looper in 2012, very controversially, The Last Jedi in 2017, uh, and then Knives Out. In the middle of that, he also directed some Breaking Bad episodes, including Ozymandias, which I forgot until I did the research for this. Yeah, and The Fly. Um, and the, You're right, he did do The Fly. Yeah. So this guy, I mean, in my opinion, is probably one of the most exciting filmmakers working today, if not the most. Just in terms of everything he releases with his name attached to it, I'm probably going to go out of my way to catch it uh i saw this movie when it came out i was completely hooked i love love whodunit murder mysteries and this movie is basically a love letter to that entire genre mike what is your uh relationship with this movie slash ryan johnson in general oh yeah well ryan johnson is an easier one for sure where i i remember seeing brick in high school i think or early college can't remember which and i love that movie um and I also love every film. We had to break on one of these episodes. Oh, absolutely. Way. It's so, yeah, he's just such a, he has this unbelievable ability to take a genre film and then make it modern or make it creative. Yes. And while yes. staying true to the genre, which is what Brick is, you're just like, this is such a genre flick told from a high schooler perspective. It's just really cool. Um, this yeah. is the Brick podcast. Welcome. But <laughs> welcome to the brick pile. But yeah, and, and in that vein, what I love about Knives Out is that it's a return to that form formula, right? I mean, I love I love the second Star Wars. That's a controversial take. I think it's by far the best of the new trilogy. But I think you obviously see how frustrated he was working with the like mega blockbuster, sure, you know, studio whatever. And it's really refreshing to see him back doing these kind of modern genre films. So that's my take on him. Love him. I think very, very creative. Uh, similarly, similarly hot take. I, I actually agree that I think the last Jedi is, is really good. 
I think there are some parts of it that are deeply bad, but I sort of, in a way, maybe I'm giving too much credit, but just looking at his entire filmography and then looking at that one movie, it seems to me pretty clear the certain parts of it that are extremely smart and clever and play with the genre and seem to know what makes Star Wars great are his parts and the other parts that feel like corporate, like like a corporate kind of shoved in extra plots feel like corporate extra plots yeah. that were shoved in. And if you if you read I don't know his, that well if you read his frustration through his comments on that process, I think you get the vibe that is exactly what happened, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyways, I'm just glad he's so back anyways, to doing this things. This is the like last Jedi style. podcast. <laughs> sure, yeah. sure. This is uh I don't have any jokes. Well, I don't want to talk we'll about have those to do movies. the last Jedi at some point. Sure. Oh, man. We can do that. I'd, I'd I mean as long as we don't have to watch the first and the third. But Um, But yeah, in terms of this movie specifically, you know, I remember just being really grateful that Johnston was back to doing what I love that he does. And at the same time, for whatever reason, I watched this well after its release. Um, Ricky, my wife and I repeatedly said to each other on like, you know, Friday afternoons or whatever after work, we're like, oh, this weekend we should go see Knives Out. And then we just never would. And then we didn't. And then we didn't. And then it wasn't in theaters anymore. And it really bums me out in hindsight because I think this would be a great theater movie. Um, yeah. And I remember watching it on, you know, when we got it in our home to watch and I was just unbelievably giddy afterwards. It is one of yeah. the most pure fun movies of the last decade. And I totally agree. It has like that. They just don't make movies like this anymore vibe, which makes me sound old. But um, yeah, I just I remember just being like, whoo, what a joy that was like after I watched it. So, yeah, I think that's a good segue into our first kind of section of this podcast. We just call it why this movie works. Uh, And we each have kind of written down some thoughts about what makes this movie a good movie. And the first thing I wrote is is basically what we've been saying. Ryan Johnson understands genres. Yeah. And he really gets what makes a genre fun. And he also gets the things that maybe are worth updating or worth worth exploring how you can sort of mess with them. So like I said earlier, I'm a huge, you know, Agatha Christie fan. My mom, I get that from my mom. She watched Murder, She Wrote all the time. And <laughs> I think like, like, you know, so the genre is whodunits essentially. And, you know, in this movie, I think you see that he knows exactly how to kind of fulfill those basic feelings you get yeah. from a whodunit, right? That you... You're invested. You you want to see the explanation. You want to see the twists. You want to see stuff like that. But he does change the formula. He's not making just an Agatha Christie novel, right? Yeah. He is yeah. doing things that really, really mess things around. So even if you, like me, are really, really familiar with that genre, you still are getting stuff that you ne- that you wouldn't expect. And you're still getting things in different ways that makes it interesting. Just one small example, just to kind of talk... Just to kind of set up what I'm talking about, the first step in any whodunit is all is the expositionary phase, mm, right? Gosh, where they have to they have to go through and kind of give you all of the details about the crime that happened. Normally, that's actually a pretty boring part of the whodunit. He takes it. He uses this interview format with Benoit Blanc, and he makes it into this incredibly funny, very fast paced very smartly written part of the movie the movie really starts like a whip and 
normally, like I said, normally whodunits, that whole phase where they're just explaining what happened is actually pretty dull. So that's an example, I think, where he, he knows the genre, but he also knows how to update it, how to change things, how to tweak it to make it really, I think, you know, just really good in a modern context. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's probably the best setting the table scene, like opening 20 minutes of a movie I've ever seen, in which, yeah. like you're saying, it takes a a trope that is often quite boring, which is it has to find a way to introduce every character, the central mystery, the intrigue, the ultimate timeline. It has to, like, bury some clues that make the rewatch. You kind of go like, aha, right? And it does that, I think, faster or with more pace and wit and like modern dialogue writing than those old movies do. And thus kind of breathes this really modern life into what's essentially just exposition in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah, it Um, really is. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of fit. I, I, you kind of, I I don't want to say it's unbelievable because I said that way too much. I realized that as I listened to these, (laughs) but it really is like a pretty perfectly shot blend of of this genre mm. trope and like i said um pulling from more successful modern movies to kind of give it extra flavor and obviously it sets up you know when i was thinking about the blend of these two things it kind of does two parts i think really well i think it a genre movie of the whodunit needs a perfect intro and a perfect ending And those were the two parts of this movie in which I felt that blend of modernity and the classic tropes that kind of came together best. Right. Um, You know, the beginning setup, they have the perfect like layer of hints. You know, there's the knife in the game room where Harlan says that Chris Evans character was too confident to notice whether a knife was real or a prop. Right. (laughs) Um, He has Harlan running through what's happened as like the perfect murder for a future novel, which is actually the plot. Right. Yeah. Um, Even like the smaller details of grandma saying, grandson, are you back already? You know, ransom being called Hugh by the help, you know, all these small little things that are classic of that genre. But they're delivered in a way that is just a lot more. I don't really know. A lot more live. It feels a lot more. um, In fact, it feels a lot less like they're giving you clues that are going to be like ahas later. And they're actually fleshing out the characters. Right. Yeah, like this is real dialogue that's taking place. Um, And I think that's that's really hard to do. And that's not common to those older films. A lot of the times it is just detail work. And then obviously those genre films need the perfect final scene and where they lay out all that's happened and unravels the mystery. And it's the aha moment. And this Mm. is actually my favorite blend because this obviously nails that. But then it also like throws in like... (laughs) really like crass lines if this was made in the 1940s like there's the throwback yeah. to the nazi kid masturbating in the bathroom masturbating in the bathroom yeah, that right. is one of the best lines in any film <laughs> and you're just ever. like oh yeah this is a modern movie right so i don't know that's that was a lot of kind of like throwing it out there um no, i love absolutely. the other small touches like it, the detective actually has a magnifying glass and they're in like this old time clue house but it's obviously set in like a you know to or, or late 2010s home or city yeah right so it, it blends it very well i yeah I, I totally agree i think the other thing with that last scene that works is, is benoit blanc we'll put a pin in that for a second and and kind of keep on this train i think 
the other thing it does kind of in the same conversation of, of blending the old of understanding the genre I really I can't explain how fun it was the first time I watched this when about uh, right when it gets in the second act it becomes this complete reversal on the genre yeah and I thought the movie yeah. was going to stay that way the whole time it doesn't but I loved the section I would have watched the whole movie when Marta is the killer sort of and is trying to mislead the detectives as they are trying to figure out what happened. I thought that whole section was just brilliant. It was yeah. also kind of a flex. Yeah. Right? It it's is. like, cause that's hard to write the, the idea of again. So now we know, or at least we think we know everything, but we are with this character who's trying to waylay suspicion off of her. Yeah. That is so brilliant. It, and is. it is. Again, I think, I think for people who are a fan of the genre, it's a treat because you never see that. That's, just, that's a huge twist. It's such an interesting, again, twist on the character of Benoit Blanc, because usually yeah. in these movies, the detective is almost otherworldly and like their awe that you have Ability of them. To, you yeah. can tell that like it's not that they're idiots. It's that they're missing key parts. And once they get it, they're going to connect all the dots. Right. And this movie yeah. does a really good job at times of making you feel like Benoit Blanc is actually not a good detective. Like, you're like, how did he miss this? Like, she's like stomping yeah. on her footsteps and he doesn't realize what she's doing or she has blood on her shoes. And it, it's such a fun thing because obviously the movie does that intentionally to set up at the end. That's like, oh, no, he is this otherworldly detective. He didn't yeah. miss all that stuff. And it just builds to him. It's like so they play with that trope making you think it's like, oh, this movie's actually going to kind of poke fun at that character trope. Yeah. And really, he is that character trope. He's just acting like he doesn't see what's going on. I think yeah. that's fantastic, right? It reminds me of one of my <laughs> other favorite lines of the whole movie. Uh, let me see. Did I actually write it down? I think I did. It's like a case with a hole in the middle. <laughs> donut. A donut. <laughs> but the then, hole in the then, donut is another donut. <laughs> yeah, later he says, it's not a donut hole, but a smaller donut with its own hole. And our donut wasn't a donut at all. <laughs> That's so amazing. Good. And you're it's right. So it all good. sort of distracts you. And actually, the other thing, I, I said this when I first saw the movie, when I walked out of the theater, I, I forgot who I was with, but I said that the thing that was so brilliant about this movie is that it manages to have its cake and eat it too. Mm, that's because good. on the one hand, it it is a complete subversion of the whodunit trope, uh, sorry, the whodunit genre. And you, with things like you were saying, the kind of brilliant detective is actually kind of a little bit bungling through most of the movie. Uh, we sort of know the killer and we're sort of following the killer, trying to you know avoid suspicion and stuff like that. It manages to do that while then in the very last act actually reversing its reversal and becoming just a traditional whodunit. Right? It's with so the, wild. And, <laughs> and it lands both of those, I which know. is very hard. It's I wouldn't crazy. think that that would. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, uh, as long as we talked about Benoit Blanc, the second thing I wrote down, why this movie works, obviously the characters. Yeah. The characters oh. are amazing. Uh, they're so... Over the top, I, what I wrote down is you can kind of tell he had a huge smile on his face the whole time he was writing this. Yeah, yeah. Right? That And just the way they're also over the top. You have Harlan Thrombey. You have his kids, Linda, Walt. You have the the interplay between all of them. You have the I – for, I forgot to write her name down, but the Gwyneth Paltrow stand-in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, with, that's uh, Tony Colletti's character. Yeah. Um, yeah what's uh, her name? Her name Clam is Joni. She's trying to – yes, Joni – 
you have Ransom, you have the, it's just, it's such a delightful cast. I mean, they're all terrible people, Mm -hmm. but they're so fun to watch and to watch at each other's throats and responding to all of this and lying through their teeth. Uh, in a weird way, Marta is maybe the most boring character in the movie, but that's okay because she's kind of an audience stand-in. Yeah, and she yeah. has moments, and so it, it, it works. Uh, but yeah, the all of the characters are amazing. And do you want to do the Daniel Craig thing now? Do you want to? Yeah, I mean, I, we can do. I think we're ending up talking about more than just Daniel Craig because there was a couple performances in this movie that blow me away. But let's sure. start with your boy. Okay, let's start with Bond. Yeah. Yeah, which I, I I think I said this to you last week. We were talking, uh, and, and I mentioned there is something so odd that he is so associated with James Bond. I know when he is by far the best actor to ever actually have that role. It's ridiculous, and you yeah. sense a certain frustration in him, like because uh, obviously there's the famous like it keeps coming up the contract negotiations. He seems to kind of hate the role. And you watch something like this and you sort of get it because you're like, wow, this guy really acts. Mm-hmm. And this guy is hysterical when he wants to be and is charming when he wants to be. And this is just such a perfect role for him to really go in head first. I think this is this is one of those roles that is so hard to imagine someone else nailing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. With the accent that's so over the top, with the like we said, the bunglingness that comes around actually and ends up not being that much of a of a mishap uh he just plays it so well and he he has all these different things he has to make you feel while still being relatively believable it's just a delight i would watch they're making i don't know if you know they're making sequels uh to this movie with him as the central returning character can't wait and i'm yeah i'm completely on board yeah. Ryan Johnson's writing it, so I'm yeah, I would watch a thousand movies with Ben Rob Blanc in them. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those it's definitely one of those performances where you like you said, you can't imagine anyone else doing it. Cause like you have to have the capacity for the donut line. Like the delivery of that <laughs> line is like such good comic and like genre delivery. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Really, that entire last monologue, you're just like I can't imagine someone else doing this and being able to do the scene like when he's smoking the cigar at night on the porch. Right. And there's almost like a um, threatening nature to him. It's almost like Bond in that moment. Right. Where you're just like, oh, this guy is actually kind of like imposing and a little um, a little scary if I was someone who was afraid of getting caught. Right. And so I can imagine someone doing the comic delivery. I can imagine someone doing the more serious notes that he has to hit. But the fact that he blurs it all together and then also can capture righteous indignation, like when he yells at the family at the end, which is a great yeah. little speech. Oh, there. it's yeah. unfreaking believable. One of the best lines of any movie um, or a couple of the best lines, I mean. But yeah, but yeah, so he's perfect. Um, but really, it's it's an ensemble thing. Like you said, yeah, there are so many characters that have to hit um, really over the top, exaggerated you know, notes in terms of capturing a very specific singular note persona, because so much of this is like an allegory. Right. And so like Tony Coletti has to be perfectly obnoxious and she is. (laughs) And Christopher Plummer has to be like the perfectly witty writer who you fall in love with, with literally 10 minutes of dialogue. And then you have to spend the whole film trying to figure out what happened. I think two, two performances really impressed me for different reasons though. I think Chris Evans 
like yeah. Being, yeah. being the gigantic dick. I think a lot of us yeah. forget that this is right after basically Captain America's run. So you're just like, oh, he's been goody two shoes. And now he's just a monster in this movie, yeah. <laughs> like in an entitled yeah. brat. And he does it so well. And I think it's really, really impressive when you think about where you were when you first saw the film and to see Captain America being this kind of a person. Just the worst. So good. But the other well, one... It's kind of like the thing I said earlier. I think he's having so much fun yes. playing against oh, Hype, right? Oh, my gosh. That, like, and you got to think for him, he's spent, like we said, so long being a goody two-shoes. Yeah. You just sense that he's there's a relief there of just like, it's so much fun. I want to shout out the scene. Uh, we do a pretty good job not cursing in this podcast, but you have to, you have to just say it. The scene when he's meets the family, and they're all arguing. <laughs> yeah, at some point, yeah. he says, "As a matter of fact, eat shit." How's that? And he starts going around and telling <laughs> them all to eat shit. One. <laughs> I also want to shout out Michael Shannon. Then it's it's actually kind of gets a little lost, but at some point near the end of the scene, when they're all yelling back at him, he shouts. I won't eat one iota of shit. Yes. And that is the best so line good. in any movie ever. It's a hysterical it's so scene. good. And yeah, Michael Shannon, again, it's someone who you're yeah. like, this whole cast is, we have to have you hit the singular note perfectly and over and as over the top as possible. And they all do it. Um, yeah. But I, I'm going to, I'm going to man crush a little bit because the sure. guy who blows me away is the most understated person in this movie, which is Lakeith Stanfield. Yes, yes, and I you're wrote just that like, down. I wrote just, that down. He's my, he's probably my favorite young actor of like his generation right now because I love Atlanta, right? And I love yeah. everything he does. And it's so well, get out. Yeah, it's like the opposite of Chris Evans in this movie, where every movie he's in or every show he's in, he is over the top. He is like existential. He is just yeah. like eating scenery in a good way. And then in this movie, he's just a background glue guy actor giving like a really yeah. between the lines, like holding everything together performance. And he does it. Yeah. It's like, Hey, can you be as unassuming as possible? That's your role in this movie. He's like, yeah. And he does. Well, all these other people are doing what he normally does in movies. It's crazy. Yeah. Like, I think it's really cool. The fact that he slides into that kind of role and it, you would believe that he's only ever been that kind of actor. Yes. Right? If you hadn't seen his other movies, he's so he feels so natural there. Yeah. It's such a good performance. Yeah. It's crazy. I, I, in fact, I think around when this movie came out, there was an article somewhere talking about him as the arguably the best supporting actor ever. Uh, just and they were just kind of going through. They were like, listen, he's always he's always kind of on the sidelines. But he's almost, but he's always hitting his mark so perfectly. It's, if you have and seen, no matter what it is, if you've seen Atlanta, like he I actually haven't. But. The first, well, you should. You're you're bad. Yeah. The yeah, first okay. couple episodes, you're like, this guy is so strange because he's essentially, you know, in their neighborhood, and and he's just super existential and constantly saying very strange existential thoughts. And at mm. first you're just like, this is a really weird character to have. But like, as the show goes on, you realize how deeply he port important he is to the tone of the show in relation to the, the rapper and then the agent that basically are the central relationship. And you're kind of mm. just like, oh, you understood what this show needed from this character and you just hit it every single episode. Even if it doesn't make sense yeah. at first, by the time you're done, you're like, this show doesn't work without that guy. 
doing that yeah. exact part, right? Yeah. Oh, he's amazing. Yeah. Oh, he's so oh. good. Oh. I, I think it'd be a miss if we didn't at least say, I, I, I don't think I was being negative earlier. I did say that she was a boring character. Anna de Armas, de Armas sorry, does an amazing job in this role, though. Kind of her breakout, I guess, because this plus Blade Runner 2049, yeah. which was either the year before or a couple years before. Uh, so she really also came out of nowhere, is essentially perfect for this role. Uh, you know, very, yeah, I, I think she just plays it so well. Jamie Lee Curtis, same thing. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I don't know. You just want to, I, I would watch, like I said earlier, I'd watch more Benoit Blanc movies. I'd watch more Thromby movies. I know. I know they won't make them because it's a pretty nice little wrap up. But it's such a fun group of people to watch. It is. Um, yeah. And, and they actually one of the things that they do really well with the cast is this is one of those films where everyone gets a line. Right. Where yeah. everyone's going to yeah. have at least one line where they are the center of the scene and it's hilarious or it's often really vomit inducing. And yeah. those kind of scripts are kind of designed for there to be a weak link. Right. Because someone mm-hmm. might miss their line, but if you only have one central line in the whole film, you kind of move on, right? Yeah, I think what's amazing really about th- this movie is that every single person hits their line. Like, even the Nazi yeah. kid hits his lines when he has to, like, say <laughs> yeah. something. And yeah. it's just, it, it's, a, it's a testament to both the writing and the acting um, that I find oh, gosh, very I impressive. I didn't write down his name, but... I gotta look it up now. The other uh, police officer, oh, yeah. same the thing. The guy who's constantly like obsessed with the books. <laughs> Trooper Wagner, Noah Segan. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> everything he says is so funny, and like you said, it lands perfectly. And if one of those roles didn't land, in a sense, that'd be okay because it's an ensemble movie. Yeah, but that makes it more remarkable that they all land. That they all do. And that's also it's worth noting that's great acting. That's also really good directing. A lot yeah. of people don't. Yeah make those connections where oftentimes when you see bad performances that has as much of not more to do with the director. A sure. uh, great example is the star Wars prequels, tremendous actors, very bad acting. And that's all because of the director, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's so well directed and, but the actors are also very amazing. Yeah. Uh, it Well, and real yeah, quick, I do think it's just, you're right. It's the blend of that under Johnson's care because there's so much of this movie in which in a single scene, you'll have wit, mystery, violence, um, disgust, all these things kind of bouncing from one to the next. And that I think is underrated to make a good film that does that. Right. I think it's an underrated um, ability to hold all those things together in a single scene, much less the entire movie and make it work. And I do think that comes down to directing. I mean, even when we were talking about how you have to fall in love with uh, Christopher Plummer's character, Harlan, really quick in a small amount of time, yeah. the fact that you watch that one interaction of him and Marta and immediately feel like these two characters are lived in, that they are like yeah. really attached to each other. They really love each other. I mean, that's just a it's a testament to one, how good the writing is two how good the acting is. But three, also how he knows that in this scene. I need to make you feel affection for this old man and tragedy yeah. when he dies and confusion and how Marta could possibly be considered the suspect. Right. Um, yeah. And obviously you have to do the same thing when you have to cast the disdain that these family members have for one another. That's just beneath the surface. Like that's <laughs> directing and you have to be able to 
mix that with hilarious one-liners like joylessly masturbating to a picture of a dead deer in the bathroom, which I still think (laughs) is one of the funniest lines I've ever heard in a movie. (laughs) It's just while we're here, while we're here, I wrote down the other one of the other things. Obviously, we've been talking about this whole time is it's a very funny movie. I have a couple other lines I wrote down. Yes, I saw I saw a tweet about New Yorker article about you. I thought that was great. That's great. When they finish the car chase and Lakeith Stanfield says, that was the dumbest car chase of all time. (laughs) Oh, no, here's a good good one. Yeah, Uh, go ahead. The argument in the beginning with Marta's family, your sister just had a friend slit his throat open and she doesn't need to be hearing about that right now. Be sensitive. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about that one. I did write down the line from it, but something about when Benoit Blanc is smooth talking the grandma thrombi for so long, it's, it's, it's nearly a monologue that he just spends like, you know, like three minutes going like, uh, well, I, you know, I, I feel bad, but I think I'm probably the first person to say, and he's just going so long trying to smooth talk her and eventually just sits down in silence. It's great. Isn't that also though? Like, I think again, it talks about the juggling act that they do because that line is also one of the hardest hitting, like sad lines of the whole film. Yeah. I agree. You yeah. don't think about that, right? You're he's like, I'm yeah. sorry to say that I'm probably the first person to basically give you sympathy for your dead son. And you're just kind of yeah. in that moment. Like, Oh, he's probably oh right. My gosh, he's right. And you see it in her face. I too. Do. In a way, you're making me feel bad because I didn't even I only read that scene comedically yeah, because he yeah. is trying to, like, warm up to her. But that's what I'm saying. And she's he, literally giving him nothing. That's what I'm saying. But it yeah, blends, I guess you're right. It blends yeah. those two things so well because it's uh, it's just good. It's just good. Yeah. Good. It's writing. an extremely funny movie. Uh, This is pretty much the last thing I have. Well, I'm, yeah. So this is one of the last big things I have in terms of why this movie works. And it's an interesting contrast. So the, our last episode was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yeah. And we had a lot to say about uh, the social implications, mm. let's say, mm. the political implications possibly mm. of that movie. This movie, I think, is an interesting contrast because where that where Indiana Jones, one thing I said when we were talking about that is it didn't have to resort to these stereotypes to be the as good as it is. This movie is almost the exact opposite. It mixes in fascinating politics yeah. in an unobtrusive but meaningful way. Yeah. yeah. And that's pretty hard. It like is. just to start with, it jumps into the political conversation without actually saying the word Trump. Did you notice that? Oh yeah. When yeah. they start talking and they're saying, like, well, I'm just saying, yeah, he's a bad guy, but maybe he's doing the right thing. And you're and you instantly are like, Oh, I know what they're talking about. Yeah. And I remember in the theater when that happened, for a second I was worried. I was like, uh oh, is he gonna go off the deep end? Is he gonna derail this? Is he gonna date this? What's gonna happen? But he really, he ties it into the actual themes of the movie, which I'm sure we're going to talk about more later in our essays too. But just for now, the way that Marta, you know, represents uh, this one perspective of of an American, frankly, Mm -hmm. and the thrombies represent this other more conservative, more wealthy perspective. And he mixed that into the themes of the movie without, again, really... He, he's still true to the spirit of the film, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's hard. It's and that's, unbelievably hard. And it's yeah. insane that it's in this movie. Like that's the, th- that's the kind of thing that really elevates it that yeah. I'm like, 
is why I think about this movie more than, oh, that was fun. I'm like, oh, no, that really had interesting things to say, again, without being obtrusive about it. Yeah. I don't know. What, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I, mean, I have a ton. This is actually probably what I wrote down the most. Uh, you know, I sure. think just the, the really fascinating conversion of class politics and race built seamlessly into a genre flick. Again, we're talking about how he juggles these things without it being a problem is what you're saying. And, and I, yeah. that was my biggest, what worked in a lot of ways. I mean, cause it's, it's so layered because on like the, the top layer of this movie, there's some obvious political, social race conversations, like the very idea of an immigrant character that vomits whenever she lies being foiled with these people. Right. Yeah. is obviously <laughs> yeah. saying something it's it's contrasting like you said those two americas and truthfulness and honesty and yada 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 same is true for the fact that the whole cover-up that basically launches the plot is that marta's mother is in, undocumented and it's an era in our country where she'll be deported if yeah you know it comes out and there's something to be said there about that top layer of how our tribalism ultimately subverts like the pursuit of truth and integrity um, obviously there's all sorts of like layers of, or top layers of the myth of being self-made and what it means to be pulled up by your bootstraps, you know, but like what really fascinates me was actually like, I think my favorite theme of the movie when it comes to these kind of things intersecting was this deeper layer. When you start thinking about Harlan as a stand in for America, like the foundation yep. of America, choosing which child actually represents him and deserves his inheritance or his legacy. And it's the idea of like the immigrant being the person that an American like Harlan Thrombey would actually relate to and see in his own image, not yeah. the actual children he's produced. And I just think that is a layer of this film. Again, like you were saying, could have been ham fisted. It could have been really, uh, it could have really diverted from the film. And instead I got all of that without ever leaving the genre of film itself. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really impressive. I don't really know yeah. how you build that layer in without it being distracting. And instead, it's like in singular small details, like, you know, Linda believing she built her business from the ground up like her father when it's like, no, you didn't. That's not true. Yeah. Like you're, you, that's not true at all. Or or the fact that he's so deeply defined by like compassion and concern, like where even as he's dying, he's thinking of how to how Marta will take care of her mother. Right. How can yeah. I care for the immigrant in front of me? Because she's just like me. Um, I mean, mm. even even the the Chris Evans character, the beloved arrogant son that can't be, that can't accept that he's been replaced or that he was the only one that could like have his father's affection. All of these yeah. are feeding into this allegory about like who is America's real son in a yeah. way that feels so natural. And I think that is absolutely awesome. <laughs> like I think that is in awesome. Even the way, even the way that they are all responding to each other, one of my absolute favorite moments in the movie. So, so they keep saying to Marta, or at one point before the bull reading, they say to Marta, "Listen, Marta, we're we're gonna take care of you, right? Mm -hmm. We're gonna, we got you." Later, uh, when Marta is talking to Meg, and she starts to say the same thing, "Listen, I'm gonna take care of you guys," and Meg hangs up. Yeah, and it's like that is so unamenable to them that it's like, yeah. wait a second. This isn't how this is supposed to work. Yeah. I'm perfectly happy with you if you are grateful for what I'm giving you. 
I don't, but this is not a world where you're giving me things and I'm grateful for that. Yeah. And again, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's commentary, but it's not, in my opinion, uh, over the top and it's, it's not pushing you out. I would be, I, I did think while I was talk, writing about this topic though, I did consider what the perspective of a more conservative person than me is. Yeah. I frankly don't, I haven't asked and I haven't bothered really, but I, I don't know. I would be interested because, you know, it is one thing for you and me to say that this didn't turn, turn us off the movie. I'm interested if it does turn off someone who's more conservative. I'm interested in so far as like, oh, that that's interesting. I mean, I don't care in a sense, but, but I don't know. That, that is something worth noting is that we are relatively liberal. So sure. possibly that is, that is different, but yeah. And it, it uh, is, yeah. it is such an allegory, as we said. So these characters are standing in for, pretty exaggerated forms of ideas. So I can't imagine sure. that if you hold those ideas, it might feel like it's mocking you. Um, but you're right. I also haven't like polled a conservative America yeah, to find I, out we if, don't, we if don't that's know. the case. Um, but I mean, at the same time, I think there's a, there's like a universal quality of this that transcends even like the politics and race aspect of it, which is just talking about wealth and power and how it corrupts essentially yeah. because there is this like really interesting part of this movie, which is you're right. They treat the immigrant who like you also said really well, they hate when she gets out of her place is essentially yeah. what it is. We'll take care of you as long as you stay in your place in society and they treat her terribly. And you know, the way that they get her country of origin wrong all the time, you know, the way that they, which is, hang I, up I remember her. specifically noting that in terms of like, that that one kind of like what you were saying about when Harlan is is comforting the grandmother. Yeah. That's a similar thing too, where it's kind of a joke. But if you are, my mom is Honduran, it's and ugly. there are it she genuinely ugly. does yeah. live with people saying, "Oh, so like in Mexico?" She's like, "Well, no, uh, that is not where I am from." So yeah, I mean, if there's a part of it that's kind of funny, there's a part of it that's talking about a very real thing that that. Oh no, yeah, thing, so. I'm not saying that's funny. I'm just I want to. Let me finish the point. No, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was saying that I thought I was like, oh, this is kind of funny, but it's also kind of not. That was no, me. it's it's it is funny yeah. until you think about it and then it's not. But yeah, but yeah. yeah. So there's like this racism that's expressed to her. Right. When she especially when she gets out of her place at the end where they call her family. But then the moment, you know, that it actually comes down to it. One, they don't invite her to the funeral because they don't actually yeah. think she's family. But two, like the moment that she starts taking what they think is theirs. They start calling her basically racial slurs. They start accusing oh, yeah. her of gaining her father's affections. They kind of imply that she might've slept with them. I think they call her an anchor baby at one point. And there's yeah. all this like race component. That's really tied to that. We want to think of ourselves as immigrants, but really we're afraid of immigrants. Like we want to think yeah. of this divide between those immigrants and us. And we want to keep the American dream for ourselves. What I like that the movie does. That's more universal though is that when you really think about it, it's not any different than they treat their own family, right? Their yeah. own family, they act supportive, they call them family, but they are really just like, they see each member as undeserving compared to themselves, right? And the yeah. actual fruit of their family, you know, the grandson being a Nazi, the granddaughter being privileged and greedy and detached from her like beliefs in life and, you know, all these like really heartbreaking scenes like we already talked about with Harlan's mom and that no one has even consoled her like there is something really cool about this movie, which is it could take all of this and just be like, well, their politics and their racism is what makes them this way. But like there's yeah. an umbrella above that, which is like wealth, power and privilege 
produces this attitude towards everyone. It just takes different, seemingly different avenues in how it's expressed, right? Yeah. To the absolutely. immigrant that you see as less than yourself, it's racism, it's xenophobia, it's belittling. To your own family, it's just loathing. It's just seeing them as unworthy. It's still just as much vitriol, just masked in a different way. So I, I yeah. don't know. All that to say, yeah, they might be like, this movie offends me because it's making fun of me. But I also think it just has a lot of really good universal points to make about what happens yeah. when we have the corruption of wealth, right? Yeah, absolutely. It is real quick, too, because you brought up, you just mentioned her. And I just want to say, Meg is also an interesting counter oh, to yeah. the rest of the family. So in is Joni, yeah. And in a way that that's a little bit more damning for like you and me. Because I think that is where he also sort of he's also a little bit incisive in the context of, hey, I'm not you know, this isn't exclusive to people who espouse conservative viewpoints. Yeah, because Meg is a great example where she obviously espouses much more liberal viewpoints. But once there's money on the line, once there's essentially real stakes, she is just as quick to turn as the rest of them. And and she has her own kind of mini redemption. That's not really clear how serious it is. It's but not. No, that's garbage. Yeah, I, I get the impression that <laughs> yeah. it's not. But so, but yeah, you know, it, I think he's, in that sense, he's also trying to sneak one in in, in that context too. So mm -hmm. it's fascinating. And like I said before, you know, it's hard to mix this in into a movie like this. And it does it and it's effective. And yeah. that's just incredible to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also what a great I don't, final scene with the my oh, house, yeah. my rules, my coffee standing over them. It's just great. <laughs> when they're all looking, yeah, when they're all looking great. up at her. Yeah, it's just great. absolutely. It kind of reminds me. This is a tangent that we probably shouldn't go too far on, but it's it's a much more subtle version. But it's a little bit like Tarantino's projects in the last 10 years. Right. Where he's yeah, still making yeah. Tarantino movies, but suddenly but he's like. I also kind of want to say something in this and I, I kind of want to make a pretty pointed, you know, indictment of, of certain aspects of modern culture. Uh, it's just, I think I like that just when directors do that. Uh, anyways, I don't have much else in terms of why this movie works. I, I wrote down, we've, we've been saying this a lot, but just to put this specific thought into words, it's just an incredibly smart movie, mm -hmm. both in like the whodunit context and what we were saying with the mixing in politics context, the writing, it plays with perspectives in interesting ways too. Like one of oh, my yeah. favorite details I wrote this. I wrote this for sure. is the way that every character when they're, when they're talking to Benoit at the beginning remembers themselves standing next to Harlan when the cake is brought to him, Yep, yep. which is a very small detail, but very clever because it, it, clues you into the unreliableness of their narration. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also the way that all of them remember that po political conversation slightly differently uh -huh. and starting yeah. at different places and resulting in different things. It's just very smart with the way that it approaches. It reminds me kind of of like kind of, I, I, I was thinking of Memento possibly because I rewatched it recently, but you know, j just that like kind of cleverness and how you're arranging these things and how you're, making them tell your audience something slightly different than what you're telling the characters and stuff like that. I don't know. It's just a really smart movie. Yeah. 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 I, I really like, like you said, the unreliable narrator. Cause I think another yeah. thing I noticed was depending on who is capturing an argument, it's the who's, who is seemingly drunk or belligerent changes and who sounds reasonable. Yeah. And the other person yeah. is like, there's all this stuff. Sometimes, like, sometimes very subtly too. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like well, they're you, putting you have themselves to rewatch to, 
as the yeah. victim or as the hero, depending on what they're, it's pretty clever. It's just very clever. Um, yeah. And, and it uses that, I think really effectively to capture like intention to capture insights into the characters, how they see themselves. That's all very subtle, but also like on a more like bludgeon you with it way, it does, it uses it really well to capture how, like the deep lies and hypocrisies within these people, you know, how many yeah. scenes are there where they're like, you hear them telling the story. And then the very next scene is someone from their perspective being like, that's not how it went at all. This person is delusional. Right. Or yeah. they're lying. And there's a way that you can do that where you just tell me that these people are liars and not necessarily intentionally lying all the time, though. Sometimes they are, but like that they've deluded themselves and then you can yeah. show it. And this movie does a really good job with that flipping perspective of showing me how delusional these people are rather than telling me. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. I think it's just, it's a smart movie. Like you said, that's a, that's a sign of a really smart movie. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. The last thing I have for what makes this movie work, uh, I've been watching a lot of a YouTube channel that's talking about cinematography lately. So I, I just wanted to call out that this is an exceptionally good looking movie. Oh yeah. He uses this very, did like so it's it's shot digitally at least it looks a lot like it's shot digitally so it's very clean frames but it uses a lot of darkness and light and plays with that and it just it just looks i don't know it just looks so much like what i imagine these murder mysteries look like right? yeah sort of well worn but also a little bit clinical but also a little bit sort of ancient and cold and the house looks like i mean uh, Lakeith Stanfield's character says, look, we basically live, he basically lived on the clue board. Yeah. Uh, yeah. it just looks so good. So I just want to call that out. That was the last thing I have for, for what makes this movie work. Oh no. Yeah. I think cinematography is great. I mean, the set pieces are great. The, the chair of knives is like actually really oh, cool looking gosh. as a central thing to look at. Um, and your eyes keep going back to it. And obviously he's going to pull a knife off and try to kill Marta. But so it, it plays with props and lighting just really well. I mean, even when she comes down, you know, I was just thinking of this scene when she's coming down the side of the house and she looks at the grandma staring at her in the window and then it flips to how they use the lighting to show it's like a reflection or whatever. Or you, it wants yeah. you to think yeah. she sees a reflection. That's just a really well shot scene. Right. So yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's a, it's an unbelievably well-made technical movie too, which kind of that's yeah. Ryan Johnson. That's what he does. So, if nothing else, he, he always nails that. Absolutely. Yeah. Man, we got to do Brick at some point. I know. This is the Brick podcast. <laughs> this is the Brick podcast. Welcome. <laughs> uh, I think we covered, for me anyways, that's all my notes on, on what makes this movie work. Uh, do you have anything else for that? Um, I had two quick ones. I think we need to at least yeah. say this out loud. It's one of the most amazing second watch movies I've seen. Oh, like yeah. the rewatch, oh, yeah. which is true for the genre. But I just want to say that I just want to put that in the ether. Um, I my actually favorite, real, real yeah, quick on, on that. My favorite small detail is uh, later in the movie, very late in the movie. Uh, Benoit Blanc reveals that he was suspicious of Marta ever since he saw blood on her shoe. Yeah. And when you rewatch it, when he meets her, he, he looks, looks down. down. He does the <laughs> smallest double take, like the smallest double take. Yeah. yeah. And then he keeps going. When you first watch it, you will never notice that. Nope. But the it's second great. time you will be like, oh, my God, that's when he saw it. It's so yeah, good. It's great. And then I also wrote down um, for at least coming out of 2020, a movie where everyone gets what they deserve is like what a lovely world to live <laughs> in for a moment. Like yeah. the line that he says, you won not by playing 
the game Harlan's way, but by yours, you're a good person. And then she wins in the end. I don't know. It's nice to see yeah. that happen when it doesn't happen in our world very often. So it's kind of it's kind of a shout and fraud, right? Yeah. Like it's there's something very gratifying about it in a in a very primal way. Yeah. Uh, well, see so yeah. That's it. That's all I got. Okay. Uh, so now we're gonna move on. We have a section. What holds this movie back? What maybe could have been better about this movie? Uh, I literally only have one thing, and it's a very small thing. I think Mike has more, but I just wrote in. in as I was writing this, I thought, you know, this is actually a pretty normal thing for the genre, for whodunits. There is a point towards the end of Act 2 when Marta meets up with Fran, the housekeeper. Somewhere around there, it does start to drag a little bit. Yeah. You are getting, because what's been happening is you've just been getting more and more complicating factors for the last whole act. And you are you don't feel like you're very close to a solution and it's starting to get a little bit just kind of kind of the pacing's just getting a little bit slow. I will say on the second and third viewing, that's not as pronounced. Mm. The first time I was feeling really lost. The second time and third time, I'm like, okay, I kind of know where this is going, so this is okay. Uh, but I yeah, kinda, I don't know that that that's my only small thing. Yeah, I kind of disagree with you there. I actually felt it was you? more pronounced in the second viewing. Shut up, John. I'm right. Oh, oh sure. That's that's fair. I can. Yeah, I, like, I see. Yeah, I, I kind of know where it's going to like the part of the movie I like again. And really, it's like everything after the will leading or will reading, you know, the scenes like the burning down of the medical records. The car chase has a great final line. But for the most part, it's like maybe too long. I kind of get what it's doing and it feels yep. kind of shoved in. Um, that, that chunk of the movie drags for me and which is a shame because it's such a, like I said, it's such a like fast paced movie in a really good way. I think I I would go as far to say that they miss it on that. And you're right. It is part of the genre, but I, that doesn't mean that it's great um, from my perspective. So I definitely put pace and length. It probably could have been a bit shorter. And really some of those scenes are crucial to the plot, but they could have just been shrunk. You know, yeah. you just don't need to spend yeah. that much time with Ransom, honestly, as much as I love Chris Evans. But um, but yeah, I had two more. Um, one, this is a small one. Then we'll get to the bigger one. I wrote there is an emotional toll that movies with such terrible people at the center take on me, especially when there isn't a redemptive arc at all. And sure. I don't know if this is a criticism and it kind of f- builds into my larger point, which I am interested to hear thoughts on which is that this movie is an allegory, right? The characters are stand-ins for ideas, or at very least political perspectives, social perspectives, class, we already talked about all that. And as an allegory, the purity of the characters, and that's that kind of over-the-top, good or bad, right? And their lack of change in terms of actually growing as people, like really works when it comes for progressing these ideas and letting us know what Johnson thinks about them and asking us to think about them. And really, there is something really important to the idea of the movie that all that changes with these characters is their positions on hierarchy, not in like yeah. there's no internal change. I think that's an important point he's trying to make. However, when it comes to being a movie with a plot and a story and like tracking the characters, I think it makes it really. I don't know how to say this. It makes the movie lack at least a little bit for me. And I don't sure. think that has to be inherent to allegories because I we just, uh, not just, months ago talked about In Bruges. And In Bruges is a yeah. movie with allegorical characters that still feel more human than these ones do, right? Sure. 
And even if they don't necessarily ever leave their buckets or when they do, it's to talk about the ideas that they represent. They still feel like lived in people more often than a movie like this one sometimes does. Yeah. That's my end of my novel. Yeah. What do you I mean, think? It's an interesting point. And, and frankly, it's just one I've never thought about. So I don't know if I have too many, too much of a take on it. I, I guess I broadly agree. I, I think that I sort of have an internal separation, right? That, that I, I, there's a certain detachment that I think I exercise with a lot of mediums. And so part of that, maybe I, I don't necessarily relate to the, to feeling that in that sense. But mm-hmm. I also am like, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is a certain, you know what, actually though, I say that by actively avoid, uh, well, how would I say this? I rewatch the West Wing so much. Yeah. And I, I think part of why is because there's a certain level where it's like I already know that this will that, that I want to kind of be around these characters. Right. And yeah. so I think that that's probably the most obvious example of what you're talking about in my life. That's like, oh, yeah, I, I think I struggle being around or rewatching something like this with those kinds of characters like he said, for too long. So, yeah, I don't know. And so much as that is concerned, I guess I, I see where you're coming from. But, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that, yeah. And it's, again, it's, it's strange. And it might just be a matter of taste. Like, there's a part of me that's sure. like, uh, maybe that's all there is. It's just a kind of um, a preference thing. But it's the fact that, like, you know, I've seen, I've read Animal Farm. And yep. I've seen in Bruges. And I know I prefer allegories like in Bruges more than I would wanting to watch repeatedly, at least, or rewatch Animal Farm, the movie, because once I get the ideas, it loses a little bit of its rewatchability. Right. Um, It it, it stops being something where I enjoy spending time with these characters and starts just being like, oh, I get the themes that it's talking that each one's trying to express to me. And thus, I don't need to really pay attention to them anymore or because I don't like them. So I don't know. It just it's an interesting thing I realized on the rewatch where the movie from the plot is incredibly fun to watch when you rewatch it a second time. The characters and what they're trying to communicate, I don't think I got a ton more out of them and thus I was sure. less interested in them. So, yeah. That's I, all I, I can got. accept that. I'll get off my yeah. soapbox now. Ryan Johnson oh. stinks as a director. The third yeah, Star Wars is the best one and the Emperor Which should you be in this seen. movie. Okay. No. Great. Well, now we have a small section called Stray Thoughts. Mike and I have each written down a few notes. I actually don't have very many. I only have three. Uh, but we've each written down a few kind of just, yeah, stray thoughts we have about the movie. Uh, to start with, and, and there's a certain level here where I don't know how much value there is in finding small plot holes in whodunits. So maybe this is a little bit nitpicky. But Marta walking downstairs in Harlan's clothes and just hoping that someone would send him back <laughs> upstairs without looking at him is a hell of a gambit. Yeah. That's yeah. wild to me. I'm yeah. like, man, that really worked the only... The way that played out is the one way out of a thousand that it would play out perfectly. Yeah. Where someone heard him said, go back to bed, dad, and then sent him back up. I'm like, I was like wow, Wait a I minute. feel like 
You're a I feel like 99 five times foot tall Latin American woman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, I don't know about that one, uh, Harlan, but whatever. Uh, what you got? Um, yeah, I guess I'll go with a nitpick too. Uh, they say that the dogs won't bark at her because they know her, which is a central yeah. clue that it was Ransom who did it. But they bark at everyone they know, one, including her, actually. Yeah. When they run out to her as she walks out of the woods, yeah, they definitely are barking. And I'm like, eh, well, I guess they couldn't make the dogs not bark. But Like, well, that was a cool idea, but uh, (laughs) cool. Uh, I wrote, did Fran, the housekeeper, did Fran really not foresee the possibility that Ransom would simply kill her at their meetup? Yeah. It's it's a she bad invites plan. him to the shadiest. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's a, a terrible plan. idea. <laughs> yeah. To this, she already knows he's capable of killing. She invites him to an abandoned laundromat. It looks like. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Great. Great and, plan. And he kills her, and it's like, and you're like, well, yeah, that's bad. But all, and then part of you is like, well, that just wasn't a very good plan, Fran. I mean, I'm sorry. She's uh, probably I'm smoking that devil's lettuce. It. <laughs> smoking Ooh. that devil's lettuce didn't Ooh. know what to do Ooh. that's, that's what, what that's happens what it is. if you smoke that's the reefer canonical. <laughs> you, <laughs> you die murderers to warehouses with evidence that they want it's smart <laughs> anyways we'll see you um i i just wrote the first straight thought i had is just are white people the worst <laughs> the movie kind of makes the argument i mean you have been wall blanc <laughs> that's a cool guy <laughs> i have a white friend by the way, small, really fun detail that we didn't mention. I love the, uh, I guess this is my straight thought. I love the uh, Will reader, the lawyer. Yeah. And especially the fact that his assistant is the one who actually seems to know all the stuff. Like she keeps having to lean over to correct him and hand yeah. him stuff that he can't find. That's just a fun little detail. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff like that in this movie. Yeah, there is. There is. What else you got? Um... This is actually my last one. Why don't we live in a world where the New Yorker runs profiles on gentlemen sleuths? That's a that just, great question. That just makes me sad. I mean, I'm, a better I, I time, guess the answer John, is they, a better they time. probably don't exist. Like, I haven't done the research because I, I know that they don't, and I don't want to look. I don't want to Google, are there really people like Benoit Blanc and Google to laugh at me? But, <laughs> but, you but idiot. I just kind of wish... Yeah, I just kind of wish that was the that was that was the world we lived in. But yeah, oh well. that's fair. That's fair. That's all well, my straight thoughts. What do you got? I got I got a bunch, so I'm just gonna okay. I'm just gonna yeah, run just go through these. Uh, fun tidbit: they never reveal where Marta is actually from. Really like that. <laughs> I'm not um, sure if I noticed that. Yeah, they never actually tell you. It's just it's hilarious. Um, it's one of the better films in terms of incorporating movie titles into a moment in the movie. You know, yeah. I love Face Off, where you know we got to take his face off. But this is a do little you know, bit more seamless than that. Do you know the backstory though of the of no. the name? No, this is the As Face Off podcast. Okay, well, yeah, this is the Face Off podcast. So, you, so you, pro, so I guess you don't know this. So, it's actually it comes from a song title. It's a song mm. title by Radiohead. Uh, Johnson has said he's a huge Radiohead fan. Uh, the song doesn't really use it in this context. Uh, I'm not. I actually don't remember if the lyrics come up in the song. But at any rate, the song is called "Knives Out." So it's actually a reverse. I think this makes that line even better in the movie because it's reverse engineered. He yeah. had the phrase "Knives Out" from the song title, and then he works it into the that uh, little speech. 
Knives out, beaks bloody. Yeah, whatever. No, okay, it's I'll a read great it. speech. I'll read it. Let me read it. Yeah, yeah go ahead. It, go it's ahead. Yeah. He says, excuse me, you have not been good to her. You have treated her like crap to steal back a fortune that you lost and she deserves. You're a pack of vultures at the feast, knives out and beaks bloody. Well, you're not getting bailed out. Not this time. Miss Cabrera has decided definitively not to renounce the inheritance. Yeah. <laughs> that is so good. There is such that is so epic in the con because you've been waiting for that the whole movie. Yes. For someone to just oh. call them out on, on all of their BS and just say, No, you guys suck. Well that, I mean, it's, felt, that felt very good. A big part of my talking point, so I won't spend too much time on it, is how, you know, Benoit Blanc spends all of his like detective strategies are about just asking questions he doesn't ever yeah. truth speak until that scene in which he's yeah. just like no let me tell you who you are <laughs> like yeah. i'm not drawing it's this so out good. of you anymore you guys are vultures and knives yeah. oh, knives out beaks bloody oh it's so good all right let's knock a few of these out um do you think marta helps the family in the end I think she does. I, I think it's. I, I think that given her nature, it's impossible that she wouldn't. Here's actually. I have a. I have a bigger take, real quick. I think what she does, and I've read about a few wealthy people who do this with their children. She offers some kind of plan where, as they make money, they get money from the will. Ooh, I like that. Right. Like so it's that. like because I think she is like she appreciates the basic problem that Harlan was confronting at the end of his life, which is none of my kids know how to live on their own. And she appreciates that and she wants to help them, but she also wants them to learn a little bit how to work. And so that's where she comes from. So I, I think that's what she does. I love it. Would you? Uh, no. Yeah, I I am a worse person than than Marta. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. You lie all the time. Um yeah. let's see. A couple other ones. Smoking cigars around people without asking is not cool, Benoit Blanc. You know, Benoit Blanc, <laughs> whatever your name is. Especially a nurse. This, like it's kind you know, of jacked funny. Up. I was I was about to say this is a different time, but it's kind of not. You so know, like it's uh, a modern movie. It's, it's pretty yeah. messed up. Pretty messed up. Yeah, well. Um, let's see. I got a couple quick ones. The game Go actually looks really interesting. Haven't played it. Would love to learn what that's about. Um, the only thing I know about Go is that it is one of the hardest games for computers to play. No, well, so, you can't, like, you can't like play it. Chess was like, so, right? Chess was like solved in like the 90s by computers. They were essentially yeah. better than humans. And only very recently, I think in the last one or two years, it was like a big news story that like Google's uh, algorithm or computer was finally able to be like the best humans at go. Yeah. So yeah, well, it's we a very fascinating game. Apparently we shouldn't play it. Okay. <laughs> if I can't yeah, beat a computer, I don't want to do it. You're um, like, I don't want it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a couple more, the community theater production of a tax return is probably the best name for a will reading <laughs> I've ever heard. That's just so funny. <laughs> such a good line. Beautiful. Um, and then I just wrote that there are just some of the best movie burns I've seen in this movie. Like, yeah, the scene where they read the will and cut everyone out is just so gratifying. I wrote yeah. down in particular, though, when Marta meets with Walt in the hallway and <laughs> with enough yes. resources, we could help you yes. fix it. Marta. OK, good, because Harlan gave me all your resources. So that means my resources <laughs> will be able to fix it. So I guess I'll find the right lawyers. <laughs> One of the best put downs in any movie ever, I think. Oh, it's, it's so, so good. good. 
Oh, and then the last one, last one. And uh, this is just a question. Like, Marta goes to jail, right? For the police chase and all the cover-ups? Well... Obstructing a police investigation? So so Ben Wall says, when, when he's giving his speech at the end, he actually says... You're guilty of nothing other than a few amateur theatrics, is what he says. Mm. Which I which I take to mean like that little police chase, uh, you know, destroying evidence. I think at one point. So <laughs> amateur theatrics destroying. I think evidence. <laughs> the really key thing to remember is the scene you just cited. Marta is now filthy rich. Yeah. Let me ask fair. you, Mike, do you think someone <laughs> worth $80 million who like maybe runs away from the police a little bit actually sees any jail time? No, I don't think so. We see this in the NFL every year. The answer is a yeah. definitive no. <laughs> so I'm going to say if she only good. for her resources, she's probably fine. Yeah. She's, she'll be okay. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, that's all I got. Um, uh, our justice cool. system is broke. That's all I got out of this conversation. We did it. We solved it. <laughs> Stick around uh, after the break. We're gonna hit up uh, straight. Or sorry, we're gonna hit up talking points or essays. Hey guys, welcome back. In this section of the podcast, Mike and I have each prepared uh, an essay. Essentially, we call it talking points or essays where we try to dive into some, you know, maybe deeper aspect of the movie, maybe just kind of tangenting off of that into some other conversation about usually spirituality. Uh, Mike, do you mind going first? I sure, I sure can, John. I know you're afraid. Look at that. You're afraid and you're a scared Always. little man. You know me. But I'm the Marta. Well, it's not even that. I'm, I'm I the Marta of this mine. podcast, so I'm brave enough to take a stand. Wow. Well, uh, I have to finish writing mine. I'm not really going to listen. I'm just going to be typing. Just don't worry You're just going to steal your dad's and be like, this is my work. <laughs> this is me. Okay. Cool. Whenever you're ready. Okay. Knives Out is a tornado. Fast, clever, witty, bouncing from mystery to banter to shock and disgust to laughter, sometimes all in the same scene. It kind of makes you feel like your head's spinning at times. And the first time I watched it, I remember catching those political undertones that John and I talked about and feeling really impressed by how seamlessly they were merged with this genre film. But mostly, I came away thinking that it was just a fun romp, a delightful way to spend a couple of hours, and it is. But on my second viewing, I found myself responding to a theme and a layer of depth, whether intended or not, that I've been sitting with this week. It's a spiritual theme, and really it's a theme about how we grow. And that is that this movie highlights our capacity as human beings to form, believe, and protect the delusions that we hold about ourselves. False stories that we internalize and use to define our identity, whether they're true or not, and then that we use to look away from the insecurities that lurk within us all. Now, characters believing delusions about themselves is not a hidden part of Knives Out. It's quite in your face. The insistence of Linda Drysdale that she is self-made like her father, despite the fact that in reality, she was able to be bold in launching a company because quite frankly, her risks weren't really risks. When she took a risk, she always had a security blanket to fall back on, which frees her to do things that someone like Marta probably would have a lot more risk in doing. Or, darkly, the repeated themes of immigration that we talked about, especially as propagated by Richard Drysdale. 
who defines himself by this delusion that modern immigrants are somehow not like his immigrant family and father, that his kind of immigrant is more American, and thus he is more American, morally superior, and more deserving than these new criminal, different kinds of immigrants. I mean, think about how absurd the delusion and the story that forms out of it that he believes is. It's captured perfectly in the final scene. He says, you think I'm going to let you take our home, our ancestral birthright? To which Benoit says, Harlan bought this place from a Pakistani businessman. Again, it's a delusion. It's absurd, but he believes it. Or there's Walt Thromby believing that his father's work is his work or that his son is a good little boy going through just a normal phase when really he's quite literally a Nazi. Or Joni and Meg, two people who see themselves as justice-oriented, woke liberals, when really they're just as selfish, resentful, and scared of the poor as the rest of the family. Especially when they, in their delusion, believe that Marta is going to take what's theirs, even though what they have isn't really theirs in the first place. I mean, the list goes on and on. In fact, Chris Evans is the only member of the family who doesn't feed a delusion about who he is because he's a freaking sociopath. Even the movie's central conflict is shaped by this theme. It's centered around Marta, a woman who literally can't not lie without vomiting, and this family that likely couldn't see the truth about themselves without vomiting as well. It's a little on the nose when you think about it. Again, this isn't subtle in Knives Out, at least not this layer. The lies, false internalized narratives, and delusions we form to avoid seeing the often gross truth about ourselves is at the core of almost every character we meet. And it's easy to come away thinking that these over, often over-the-top delusions of these characters are only in the film to provide easy jokes about how stupid, cruel, and ugly people with unearned wealth and privilege can be. Which, don't get me wrong, I do think the film is trying to point that out. But what struck me this time was that Knives Out lights up in a really interesting way, how these delusions can be unraveled and deconstructed, a process that this movie captures through Benoit Blanc. Now, on first viewing, it's easy to question his competence for about two-thirds of the movie. We talked about that. There are scenes that are meant to leave you wondering how he could possibly missing this or that clue. Like, are you blind? Which is great because, again, as we talked about, as the movie concludes, you get the great mystery genre reveal that he misses nothing, and he is truly masterful at his job. And thus, knowing the reveal on the rewatch, I was able to notice the real depth of his tactics. In particular, how adept he is at drawing the truth out of people, not by outright truth-speaking, telling the characters who they are, the truth about their lives, though he does do that in the final scene, but rather through simply asking questions. In the context of the movie, you see what Blanc is, is a stand-in for an unexpected, uncontrollable, unstoppable force flung onto the characters of the family. One that neither creates or demands the truth about the characters, but rather draws it out through simply questioning the reality that they believe and weighing each character's responses to that questioning. It's captured in the first interrogation scene. Benoit approaches each member of the family in the same way. He asks a question, they lie. He asks a follow-up question that exposes the clear holes that come out of any kind of lie. 
And then he allows their uncom uncomfortable reactionary response to having their truth exposed reveal what's really going on within each of them. He gets to the truth of them through their response to these questions. He never outright calls them a liar, and he doesn't need to. He just shows how under the weight of honest questioning from this uncontrollable force, their dishonesties and false narratives begin to unravel on their own, and the truth comes out about them. And in that, he captures, I believe, how the delusions within us can be unraveled. You see, it begins with powerlessness. We rarely, if ever, willingly choose to deconstruct these false parts of us, these false narratives that give us identity and help us cope. As taught in recovery, we almost always, as human beings, need some sort of an unexpected, uncontrollable event to begin the process. A bottom that exposes who we really are by how we respond to it and produces a moment of clarity. We need this because identity, even false identity, is a painful thing to deconstruct. When you really think about it, it's a dying of who we thought we were, after all. Thus, it's never chosen at the start. It's imposed. The alcoholic needs the DUI, the moment of abject failure or loss, to come to terms with what's obvious to everyone else, that they have a problem with alcohol. And this is true for all of us. To see these internalized things we have to have something happen to us that is out of our control, that we can't just shrug off or ignore, that we can't cope with, with the lies that we've always held. Suffering, unexpected failure, even though we tried our hardest, death. And in Knives Out, that intrusion is Benoit Blanc. The intrusion of him brought into the family through the death of Harlan is the force the catalyst that exposes the character's powerlessness, that shows up and can't be stopped from its questioning of their delusions and lies despite their power, beliefs, and insistences about who they are. And what gives the movie teeth, and ultimately, for this theme, its depth, is how it depicts their responses to that force, to Benoit. He demands a response just by being present, as all such forces do. And when you watch how each one tries to respond to them, you begin to see who they really are. And I think this highlights perhaps the most critical part of this unraveling process. Because if we can't control this event or decide what it questions and what it reveals in us through that questioning, all we are truly left with is choosing how to respond to it and what we learn about ourselves as we do. And in this process, I think our response makes all the difference in the world about what comes out of this pain. Because the bottom in questioning doesn't inherently produce change. It doesn't inherently change who we are for the better. It doesn't have to alter those false narratives. I think you see this clearly on one hand through the family. The family shows us that we can respond to this force with resistance. You watch them respond to this inability to stop the questioning and the truth that it reveals about them by wiggling, squirming, hating it, ultimately resisting it, resisting Benoit and what questions he asks and what he reveals about them at all costs. When confronted with their lives and the un lies and the unreality that they live in and see themselves through, even when confronted blatantly, the family repeatedly chooses to resist the truth being revealed, responding with denial, manipulation, and scapegoating, looking to blame Benoit or more often Marta 
to protect their false beliefs and hallow identities. Oh no, our delusions are true. We aren't the problem. No, it's that person that's the real problem. Why are you here? We just need to get rid of you for this all to end. We don't actually need to change. Seems to be how they respond to the moment. They prove that we can choose to respond to the truths revealed by resisting them at all costs. Instead of facing them, choosing to double down to further reinforce our own unreality. And like any alcoholic knows, this response always eventually fails. The truth doesn't go away just because we refuse to see it. Instead, it festers, grows, and inevitably destroys, or takes you to the point where you can't look away anymore, which the movie captures. At the end, the movie, the family members are just as miserable as they've ever been and quite frankly, worse off than if they had responded to this imposition in their life in almost any other way. In their desire to avoid bottom, in the truth that it's revealed about them, they just find a spiral leading them down to an even harder one. To the moment in which they've lost everything, their son's in jail, and Marta's standing over them with that cup of coffee. And this points, I think, to the other potential response we can have. It rode untaken by the thrombies, but one that can actually produce change on the other side of bottom. That is, responding to these Benoit forces and events, as well as their questions and revelations, and how they expose our delusions and truths and half-truths. Responding to that with acceptance, by becoming willing participants in the process that they start, by allowing them to produce self-honesty allowing us to accept the hardest pill there is to swallow, that these uncomfortable circumstances that produce such pain and discomfort in our lives like Benoit does, don't create the truth that we have about ourselves. That, though there are things like trauma and abuse that do create false identities and do create real pain, more often than not, our circumstances don't produce the most broken parts of who we are as adults. They just revealed them. They simply ask us the questions we have always tried to avoid, the kind that reveal the truth of who we already are and just don't want to see, the truth of our inconsistencies and hypocrisies, the kind of questions that our delusions are inadequate to answer, that our false identities can't handle, that we just want to not look at. These questions, this force, this process makes us face them. And ultimately, this is the only productive path forward in these moments of true bottom, to painfully allow its uncomfortable, challenging questions about our identity to prompt us to see ourselves as we actually are, to, unlike the family, accept the pain that comes with self-honesty, with seeing ourselves as imperfect human beings, this mixed bag of good and bad, and not the grand stories we tell ourselves about who we wish we were, as if that made them true to let them create within us a capacity to see the truth of ourselves that's already there. And though it's a hard path, it's one that allows us to live in reality as it is, to live in the truth as it is, and to ultimately be shaped by that revelation for the purpose of growth. As Benoit says when talking to Harlan's mother, one thing I assume of age is wariness. Damned if I don't get more tired every day, tired of what I do, following arches like lobbed rocks 
the inevitability of truth. But the complexity of the gray lie not in the truth, but what we do with the truth once we have it. The Benoit events, our bottoms, or the forces that lead us there, don't create the truth about us. They only open up the potential for us to finally see what's already there and to do something with it. They simply offer us the opportunity to see the truth, and then it's up to us to choose what we will do with the truth once we have it, either by resisting or rejecting it and taking our delusions to the bitter end, or by choosing to change through that seeing and having seen it, to lean into the parts of us that are good, to strengthen and invest in them, to grow them and further their hold on our lives, while naming and deconstructing the broken and ugular parts, the false parts, the lies, the delusions, not hiding them, not blaming ourselves or others for them, not hating them, but just acknowledging that they need to go if we want to become something different than we've always been, and letting the Benoits of our lives do their work. Harlan bought this place from a Pakistani oil billionaire in the 80s. It's one of my favorite lines in the movie. <laughs> it's so good. And you're right, too. It's such a call out. Yeah. To their whole, you know, their whole narrative that they've constructed for themselves. Yeah. I think he, that was great, man. He says it like he actually believes it like that. And he does. I, yeah. I truly believe he does in that moment. Right. And. And this that's is the our, power I think he calls it. it their birthright. Yep. He says this is ancestral our ancestral birthright. birthright. And you're like, what are you talking about? But but the power of these characters, at least the humanity of their characters, is that you actually believe that they believe it. And in that I see myself, right? These yeah. things that are just obviously untrue or half-truths that I, I can say with such conviction because I've just said it so often, I actually think it's reality or it is truth, right? Um well, That's... when it gets to something you said, yeah, something you said kind of nearer to the end, you were talking about the way that they respond when confronted with this. And you said at some point that they have this response of our delusion must or can't be false. It, it must be true. These things that we believe. So it must be you. Yeah. It must be all this other stuff that's confronting us. That's the problem. And that was just to say that that's the most relatable part to me. And and there's, it's funny because there's a part about that that in and of itself is extremely delusional, sometimes to an insane degree. Within the movie, it is, right? Yeah. Like they start blaming Marta, which makes no sense for, because they know her and they, and, and they also know the things that they've done to piss off their father. And yet they're so attached to their narrative that they still find it in them to, to accuse her. And they're not even sure what they're accusing her of. Yeah. But absolutely. I think that. It makes you see that I see that in my own life, but you also see that just in the world, right? Like I, this helps a little bit. Sometimes I think, you know, and, and again, maybe there is an argument of how political do we want to get? But I think sometimes I have had this like, you know, you start thinking like, well, how can this person make this conclusion? Yeah. You'll have people like it, it's a real thing happening in the last few years that people do blame immigrants for things that are wildly not in that realm. Right. That's not yeah. even remotely associated with that. 
and you think, well, how can he do this? But it's actually that simple of an equation. Mm-hmm. I've been told that I, I deserve this or that I was going to get this and I didn't. So it must be their fault. Mm-hmm. And they never once consider, well, maybe that narrative you were given was wrong. Yeah. or but, that, and, it, and there's something about that that's understandable. Sorry. And, or that it's it's complex. I mean, I think so much of... So one of the things that always makes me laugh is when I talk to people who are like, I don't understand how people follow you know, an autocrat or someone who is a dictator, right? More often, obviously it's come up a lot in American discourse, but you know, you hear it all the time with the Nazis. Like, it's like, how did people follow Hitler? And I almost want to laugh because I'm like, it's actually really simple. It's scapegoating is an incredibly simple, incredibly human thing to do, right? Yeah. I have been told a narrative of American exceptionalism. My life is not exceptional. I find it, I'm struggling to get by. And that's because of all sorts of things. Are a global economy, a changing, you know, economic situation in terms of what industries are thriving, all these things that are just super complex that pull from our social fabric, our economic fabric, our political fabric. And that's almost too much for me to deal with as an individual who is just suffering and who's afraid. Sure. So what's the easiest thing to do? To look at someone who's not like me or who I already have a negative disposition to and say, they're the problem. Right. If I yeah. could just get rid of them, I would have that narrative for myself. We would go back to being a great country. We would be X, Y, or Z, insert whatever um, power trip you want to say. And it's like when you do that on a global scale, you're like, oh, that makes sense. And then when you find that in your own life as an individual and how often we do that, right? Our lives yeah, aren't what they yeah. want them to be. And I'm like, if I could have just changed this one event, then I would be a perfect person. All right, have the perfect yeah. relationship. Ooh. You're just scapegoating. Like you're just you are simplifying yeah. and attacking, and that is such a human response. It's obviously a delusion, right? It's like yeah. our lives are complicated. The world is complicated, but that scares us well, so it, much that it eases our fear to simplify and, like I said, attack. Which makes scapegoating yeah. such a powerful tool. So it's it's kind of simple. Sorry, you were gonna say something. That's okay. I was going to say it's striking too, because in addition to simplifying, I think the other thing that happens is it makes it more tangible. Oh yeah. Because the problem too, when you're encountering, so let's stick with the global for a second. When you are encountering that my life is, is more difficult than I thought it should be. That is like you said, an extremely complex thing, but it also doesn't present tangible next steps. It doesn't present, well, fix this. Oftentimes it's, well, you can't really do anything about that. Yeah. You can do small things, but you can't do anything big. But when you make it that scapegoat problem, when it's it's that person, oh, man, I could do something about that. Yeah. That yeah. person, that is right in front of me. And then you're right. The same thing applies to our own interior lives, too. Well, you know, I, you know, I struggle with relationships. Well, maybe it's where I live. Let me move. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, that's a very tangible solution, but... As opposed to like therapy or, or, you know, all these things that are much more intangible. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't address the problem. Yeah. And like even on a personal level, it there's also a I mean, there's just a level of not wanting the responsibility where it's like this person hurt me. And again, I'm not talking about abuse in like there are some real traumas in which people have have harmed or assaulted or whatever a person. And it's like you are not in control of what that sometimes creates in you. Um, but a lot of the times those resentments we hold on to breakups, whatever else aren't that. 
And it's really the way I responded to that breakup for years that has gotten me into this situation. And I don't want to take responsibility for going to therapy and unraveling the mess I've made of my life. So it's easier just to be like, this person hurt me and this is why I am the way I am. And it's like, well, no, it's not true. And then I, I do think like one last thought on the larger one is it does get even more complicated when this becomes something existential, which I think this movie captures really well. Like when this isn't economic despair, but rather like an existential sense that I'm losing my privilege to determine how my world works, right? I think of Christendom all the time. Uh, Christianity blended with like basically nationalism and setting culture and being able to set how society operates on things like marriage and yada, yada, yada. When you get this sense of like, I've always had the power to say what this part of the social fabric is, how it operates, whether that's marriage or whatever else. And then you start to sense that that's being removed and it's being removed because quite frankly, we're moving into a more equitable society Mm. that creates a fear that produces scapegoating in an even more disastrous way. Cause suddenly you start looking at the people who are trying to get their rights as people who are taking something from you. Right. And if I could just get rid of them, my privilege would be returned to me. My power would be returned to me. And that's when it gets really nefarious. All of this is nefarious, but that's where it can get really. (laughs) I was going to say, it's all bad, but that's not great. It's really hard to diagnose at that point. And I think that's where you start seeing it seep out because I think the people who are scapegoating can't even identify why they're afraid or what they are losing, right? Um, It's just like a sense in the air of fear that they're trying to deal with by, like you said, finding a tangible thing to blame, remove, and to believe that if they can do that, everything's going to be fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. Crickets. I think it's like that's, dark. I think that <laughs> like that's a little yeah. dark. It's a little, I can't, there's no obvious, there's no obvious way to go. I'm sure, I don't know if you have questions or anything, but I did make a couple notes. Yeah, uh, we I actually did. covered most of what I was thinking. The only other one that, this is a very small thing, but I, I did think halfway through, I was like, you know, there's something almost, almost beautiful or almost tragic. Uh, in, in the context of the movie, you can make the argument that what happens in the movie is exactly what Harlan really wanted to happen yeah. for his children. Yeah. And you see it in a couple of the flashback scenes that he's a little bit at a loss. In fact, one of the best quotes in the movie, Harlan at one point says, sometimes I think that everything I've given my family without knowing has been to keep them beneath me. Yeah. I think he's struggling with that fact of I've accidentally sort of pushed them into this narrative and and he's the the actions he makes the night before he dies are all meant to help fix that. But ironically, it is his death and slash tragically, it is his death and the ensuing arrival of Benoit Blanc, like you said, that actually forces them to reckon with themselves. Yeah. Again, kind of weirdly beautiful slash tragic. No, yeah. But yeah, and it's, it's interesting. Yeah. It's strange how similar to like I brought up recovery this is because it's like yeah you know, my own struggle with addictions and stuff, but like also just from any alcoholic or addict you meet, it's like how many people tell you, you need to change. Like Harlan is telling his kids, you are not healthy. You need something more for yourself. Like you are destroying yourselves. Right. And how deeply you resist that. Like try telling an addict who hasn't hit bottom to quit using good luck. It's going to go great. I promise. And yet there comes this moment where it's like, there has to be almost a tragedy or a really it's just a breaking that you can't avoid 
that makes you go on this really painful journey of like unraveling like and like i said yeah. the, the journey of getting self-honest probably for the first time because like all of these illusions are about you avoiding self-honesty that is like the the death penalty that you've been trying to avoid uh, when you get down to it you just don't want to be self-honest and that's why you're using and that's why you're building these narratives and yet there's this moment of that that bottom that forces you to see it and it ultimately brings you back to where those voices have been telling you you needed to go the whole time right yeah. but you can't yeah, choose it absolutely. it's like something that's kind of that crazy paradox of you can't choose what breaks you enough to go on that journey you can only choose whether you go on the journey once it starts right yeah um, absolutely man that's a tough that's a tough pill to swallow right there yeah um, so in that vein like have you ever had that experience of kind of like an emotional bottom or powerlessness that kind of takes you on a journey of growth like that and again it doesn't have to i i know you're not an alcoholic or drug addict but like emotional bottom where suddenly you have one of these yeah. narratives or delusions kind of get exposed and you know, you have to deal with it. I don't know. Have you ever had that experience? Well, it, you know, it's funny. You and I have talked about this a little bit, but I think that, uh, in fact, you even used an example, which I kind of thought I was like, it's a little close to home. Is he, <laughs> am I, sh- should I be, should I be suing him for, uh, for life rights? <laughs> but I, I think that the relationship one hits pretty close to mm. me where the idea of specifically that, that basic little equation that happens where, you know, you, a relationship ends and you spe- you end up you, without realizing it. And that's the truly scary part. Without realizing it, you then spend two years sort of dwelling on it, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's hitting you that whole time. And there's this interesting thing where the equation really is, I think, as simple or should be as simple as if nothing else, you have to move on just because you're, you're granting that so much power in your own life, right? Yeah. You're letting that narrative, I keep saying narrative, you're letting that narrative define you well beyond the point where it should. We both, this is a common phrase, uh, but we both know someone who uses it a lot. You're letting this, this person live rent free in your head, right? Yeah. Mm. You're, you're letting this thing control you when you, when it has no right to, and when you don't have no, you have, completely within yourself the ability to move on yeah you're the only one keeping it alive so i think i've, I've absolutely experienced that specifically in the context of relationships i think the 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 it, the rock bottom in that context was not especially dramatic i think it was as simple as you know just sort of waking up one day and realizing i can't i i cannot be in another relationship as long as this is still pulling down on me right Mm. i cannot even be if the same person walked or the same opportunity walked into my door i wouldn't be able to to do anything Mm. because i'm being so weighed down by this past stuff that shouldn't even be influencing me anymore Mm. and so i I think it's just sort of that that self-assessment that reckoning which which had to in my case has to have had to happen with relationship i think probably you and i at some point went over this and kind of talked about this in our own over intellectualized way. But, you know, you have to sort of externalize a little bit, right? Yeah. I think that's the other problem. And that's the other sort of thing that, that holds people back in this is that it requires that. And, and that's the advantage of therapy. That's the advantage of meditation. That's the advantage of 
any number of things that you and I are both hugely fans of is that they force you to take that slight external viewpoint. Yeah. To, to sort of take a breath, l- try to look at your own life, not through your own eyes. And it's amazing the things you'll realize. Yeah. Um, very recently, just, just, I mentioned therapy and meditation. I also very recently have started the process of journaling, Yeah. which for a long time I, I wasn't very, I, I was interested in, but I didn't have the discipline for it. But in the last, uh, I guess now two or three months, uh, every morning I start with a journal and it's amazing the things that will come out that you've been carrying around and just the act of writing it down yeah. makes you sort of, you, it, it, sometimes it's even funny. You look at it, you're like, wow, that was really dumb. Yeah. Was that yeah. really bringing me down all oh, of yesterday? Man. This one, yeah. this one thought that I was like, you know, uh, it could be something like a feeling of inadequacy because you talked with an old friend who's doing who you perceive to be doing better in life than you even saying it out loud. It's a weird sentence and it's kind of dumb, but it's that thing like wait on me for yeah. like a day. Right. Yeah. And the next day I was singing for my journal and I was writing and I wrote out something approximating that sentence. And I looked at it. And I was like, that's really not a big deal. Yeah. I really shouldn't. Yeah. If, if, if nothing else, I shouldn't take it for granted that I understand this other person's life, nor should I try to judge two things as, complex and, and, and I, it, that you're unable to measure as much as, as, you know, life progress, whatever that means. But yet it was still there and it was still mm. pushing on me and weighing me down until I wrote it down. Yeah. So that's the advantage of those things. I think meditation and journalism and, and or jur- sorry, not journalism, journaling and, and therapy and stuff is that it, it forces you to take that external perspective. So, so yeah, yeah no, that was a big moment for me with depression when I first started getting counseling too, where it, it was the same practice. She was like, write down um, your thoughts as you have them. Sure. And sure. and you're right. The moment I did, you're like, that's insane. Like, this is insane. Yeah. It's yeah. literally it, one plus two equals 50 is like how my brain is working. And yeah. And what's funny is I always go back to, you know, that uh, Einstein quote where he says, you know, you can't solve the problems your consciousness created with the same consciousness. You'll just create better hidden Mm. problems. And, and Mm. to bring it back to knives out, that's what this is. It's like, you wouldn't have even thought to journal your thoughts without someone giving you that idea, someone from outside yourself, or we wouldn't even know the cure because quite frankly, every step that got us to the hole we're in is like, we were trying to make the best decisions we thought for ourselves. Right. I think I've maybe used this on podcast before, but I'll throw it out if I haven't. My sponsor, you know, I was arguing with him about meditation and he was just like, Mike, I need you to understand that your best thinking got you to rock bottom. And the whole point is like the story that you are playing out that's been internalized is what got you to the place you don't want to be anymore. Right. That where you are miserable. And just like with the family, like it's because our consciousness, that's the only story we know and we need a Benoit. We need something from outside of ourselves to come in and shake it up enough for us to go. This is crazy. Like we are behaving yeah. like crazy people. We are miserable, you know? Yeah. Um, I just think it's a, in that way, the film captures exactly what you're saying in a really interesting way where it's like, we need that outside perspective to shake us up, to get out of those narratives that we live in. I sometimes imagine filmmakers almost like little children leering over a dollhouse 
kind of like chuckling to themselves as they throw their little make-believe characters into this or that situation. This works better with some directors than others. Wes Anderson is the most obvious fit, and in fact, every film he releases usually has at least one person in a review saying positively or negatively that his framing and his eccentric style feel like a dollhouse come to life. I also think that this works with other kinds of directors, basically anyone who exerts a level of control over their film and its subjects. Some that come to mind are Steven Spielberg or Denis Villeneuve or Stanley Kubrick. All these directors give the sense of an all-powerful being leaning down and pushing around these characters to see how they respond. And I realized this last week that Ryan Johnson, I think, fits this mold perfectly. In fact, his whole career, with the possible exception of The Last Jedi, features films that bear that striking sense of imagination and control that I associate with that dollhouse image. 2005's Brick oozes so much style and playfulness that you can easily picture a younger Ryan doodling out the characters and the language and the setting in small breaks at school or at work. Ditto with Looper and even with the Brothers Bloom. And again, I, I came to this image partially because those films have such a strong formalized styling to them, but also because the characters in each film feel like they're locked into forces far above their own ability to control. Brick's neo-noir world, true to form, is a dark and unforgiving place that our protagonist is barely able to escape with his life, let alone to control. Looper's entire premise rests on the problem of essentially predestination, of being locked into a certain path by the flow of time. And bringing this back around, Knives Out's characters are not only trapped by forces beyond their control, they alone are, are trapped by something that I think is very relatable. Most of them are trapped by the narratives that have been handed down to them by their family. We see this most clearly in Harlan's children, Linda and Walt. Neither of them have ambition or passion of their own, or at least neither of them are much concerned with their own ambition and passion. Both are much more interested in living up to their father's legacy of building something that would match what he had built for himself. They've been told all their lives that the best thing a person can do is to make something of themselves the way that their father did. You also see this, I think, with Marta Cabrera. The overwhelming push of her culture, of her life, starting from her mother, but especially from the thromby children that she works for, and even from the overarching culture, is to have small ambition, to be grateful for anything that she might be given. Think of how the thrombies switch so violently in their attitude towards her. Before the will reading, they take her aside and they tell her that they will take care of her. They are providing the narrative that they have always provided for her. They are taking for granted her low ambitions, her gratefulness to them. Once the will is read, though, they become violent, angry, petulant. Think of when Marta says on the phone to Meg that she will take care of them. Meg just hangs up in the middle of the sentence. The idea of Marta having high ambition, high opportunity, of them being grateful to her, does not fit with the narrative that has been handed down to them. And this is the key. Any power or potential that is granted to our characters is done by eschewing the narrative that they have been handed. 
Marta, though kind and truthful and genuinely grateful, is not unambitious and immediately rises to the call of fate once she is named as the heir to Harlan's empire. The Thrombies, by and large, are weak and ineffectual largely because they've only settled into the story that was already handed to them. I used to talk a lot with people who were, let's say, very self-aware of their own spirituality, particularly when I used to work in evangelical church. And I remember one of the questions that came up over and over again was what I thought someone should believe. In other words, Christians struggling with their faith would ask me if I thought they really ought to be Calvinist or Wesleyan Arminian or Protestant or even a Christian at all. And over a long time, I slowly started to find that I didn't like answering with what I actually believe. Because I don't think of what I believe as something that everyone should necessarily believe. It's just something that I came to after my own struggles and my own deconstruction. So finally, I arrived at my own answer that captures what I think is so important about spirituality. I would say that the most pivotal, the most important thing for spirituality is growth. Almost everyone is handed down a thing to believe from either their parents or their parental figures or just the culture that they grew up in. You are usually handed a complete worldview. And I fear that many people take that worldview without ever questioning it in the slightest. They just take it for granted that the narrative that was passed to them is the only narrative into which they could live their life. Like the Thrombies, they spend their entire existence as square pegs in round holes, never bothering to grow, never bothering to self-assess. The key is growth. It is purposeful, self-driven change. It has to come from within. It has to be motivated by something outside of the narrative that you were handed. It doesn't have to be painful, though it usually is. It doesn't have to be long and agonizing, though it often is. It doesn't even have to land you somewhere especially different from where you started. I know many people who grew and evolved and ended up back at the beliefs that they started from, but with a new and fresh perspective that was their own. The valuable thing is the growth itself, is approaching the world as though there is something in it you don't yet know or understand, and embracing that fact. The thrombies are locked into narratives they had been handed, like I suppose most characters are in most stories. But we are not characters in a story. We have the opportunity, I would say the obligation, to change and to grow, to examine and prod and shift the narrative we have fixed in our brains for our own lives. And I believe very strongly that this is the best and most important thing many of us will ever attempt to do. Ooh, doggy. We're doing it. We're there. That was good. I like that. I will say, uh, you know, the I, I I did 
often wonder when I worked at a church how long it was until I got in trouble for occasionally encouraging Christians to maybe not become Christians anymore. Yeah. Yeah, no. But, you know. I, I mean, I don't know. I As a pastor, I... And this is funny. It's exactly what you were saying. You know, my journey was that I was a young child in a fundamentalist tradition who had doubts. And those doubts were responded to with, at best, skepticism or, like, mm-hmm. you know, a shh keep those to yourself more often sure. with just outright aggression. Like I'm a problem or I'm going to make other people sick because I have some disease, which led me to leave Christianity. And then over the course of my life, like you were saying, I'm one of those people who came back and kind of claimed it for myself, which has made some interesting dilemmas in this uh, sure. last, we'll just say four year cycle in which I have found myself often being like, I actually believe this story, but I'm not sure if you all do like this Jesus guy I actually yeah. chose him. So I actually believe and I've like, I want to follow this yeah. and I'm not sure everyone else does. But anyway, that's a whole nother conversation. But what makes it so interesting is that. So when people come to me with doubts, like maybe it's from that deep childhood wound. I don't know, but I encourage them because like you're saying, like yeah. doubting is the only way to make a belief your own. And yeah. If you don't question it, it never actually impacts you. It just becomes a background song, right? Yeah. As you go on being whatever kind of schmuck you are. So I think you're And I would even go so far as to say, kind of tying back to to your own essay, that not only if you don't question it, you also risk it becoming one of those things that feeds into those delusions about. Oh, absolutely. That because I think, I mean, Frankly, you and I have just seen this quite a lot and, and, you know, to a certain extent been party to it as well. So we're not above this, but it is a very common thing. I think that when you're handed that, and like we said, if you, if you never question it, if you always take that worldview for granted, then it's so easy for deep uh, untruths to slip into that because you've never questioned it And, and people around you in your culture have never questioned it. Yeah, I think that yeah. that's like the biggest single issue I still have with with what we might call standard Protestant evangelical Christianity. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Is that it doesn't encourage a culture of questioning. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, most religions don't because it's it's difficult for a religion institutionally to grow in that context. But I guess that's also why I'm not very interested in institutional religion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I think that that's the thing is that if you don't do that, it, it becomes such a wide, it just opens the window for things to sneak in that any rational person would, would stop at some point and look at it and say, well, wait a second, why do I believe this? Why do I believe that a ten, a nine, you know, just to take an obvious example from Christianity that you and I have talked about a lot, why do I believe that an eight-year-old who dies will go to heaven and a 14-year-old who dies, if they haven't said the right words, is going to go to hell. Yeah. It's like, if you really examine that, it makes no sense. But it's been handed down. And mm-hmm. it's been it's been incorporated into that worldview, which someone who's born into it is told not to question. Yeah. Um, so that's where these things slip in. And these things become... And you and I, I think, would also say that that has nothing to do with what true Christian spirituality is about. No, and yet yeah. that still is in there and it still slips into that. Well, and it's funny cause it's, it's what you're saying or one, a part of what you're saying is 
that I, I really relate to is like, if you don't investigate the narratives that you want to direct your life, they're going to be co-opted by the more powerful narratives that actually do like direct your life, whether you identify them or not. Yeah. Right. If your underlying narrative is that the world needs to be in order and simple, then you're going to take the complex paradoxical story of Jesus and cram it into that box without realizing it coming up with sure. all sorts of systematic theologies that when you actually think about them are crazy because they're conforming to that desire for simplicity, to that black and white dualism, to mm. that yeah. control, not to the paradox of death and resurrection or uh, of spirituality in general. Right. I mean, I think about yeah. that all the time with the parables where it's like, we've talked about before the parables are these bizarre open ended stories that you're supposed to enter into and play out from each character's perspective. And like, they never have a set meaning. They're always supposed to be something that you wrestle with. Right. And yeah. yet you can see how that dualistic thinking leads us to be like, well, this character's Jesus and this one's the sinner and this one's how you get to heaven. And it's like, yeah, that's not what he's doing. <laughs> like, and yet yeah. we've shaped this spiritual tradition of questioning and wrestling into something so dumb if we stop to think about it, but we don't because we have a deeper, stronger underlying narrative that is co-opting the spiritual sure. one. Right. Yeah. And I just think absolutely. that's the danger of it. You just don't realize that's happening. And before you know it, your whole worldview is a sham, right? Or it's at least shallow. Yeah. So I think you're spot on, man. I think it's spot yeah. on. I have a, I have, I have a few questions, but actually I think we've covered, most of what I wanted to talk about, I, I had one question that I'm very interested in what you, what your thoughts are. Uh, if someone does want to start that process of deconstruction, what's your advice to them? Like how, how, how does someone start? Cause I realized I was like, I, I never had an answer to that before. I always said like, I don't know. I went to college and took a couple classes that were like, Hey, maybe the things you thought weren't great. And it's like, Oh geez. But I, I'm wondering if there's any like general, thoughts we have mm. on that like like ways of of what that looks like i in a sense i think it's well sorry i, I don't want to answer for you what what do you got yeah i have three maybe connected maybe not thoughts you know on one hand there's what i talked about in my last essay which is on one hand you have to admit that you don't get to choose a lot of the time when you go sure. through the process of deconstruction like i remember having a friend who was struggling with addiction and they knew somewhere that they needed to change, but at the end of the day, they couldn't. And I remember one of my mentors being like, you're just going to have to let them suffer a bit longer, which is mm. a hard thing to hear. But it's just like this person hasn't suffered from this false narrative enough to want to change it. Um, and again, talk about part hard pills to swallow. That's true about ourselves often also. Sure. Like you just have to suffer a little bit longer. A more positive <laughs> answer <laughs> is I think there's two key components. One, and you, I can never know this from the person, but there is that internal component. They have to want to do it, right? Sure. I think about, you know, when it comes to the narratives, my dad's wasn't ambition that he passed on to me. It was actually like how present he was as a father. Like my dad gave up a sure. ton of career and all this stuff to be around us as kids. And when I try to be like, I want to be my dad by how present I am to my daughter, I don't actually get better at being a dad or more present. I'm mm -hmm. just consumed with trying to live into that mold like you were talking about. Yeah. But when internally, 
I come to the conclusion that I want to be a good dad, like my father was, but in my own way, right? There's an internal shift there, an internal will or an internal desire that suddenly starts making me take steps, not to try to mirror someone I can't be, but to like find out what that means for myself, right? Yeah. So there is that internal component or desire. I think the the biggest part of beginning deconstruction, it is being able to objectively or subjectively, I don't know which word you'd use, be like, what's the worst thing? That could come from me letting go of this belief I'm, I have been told I have to hold on to, that I'm painfully struggling to hold on to, that I honestly can't hold on to, right? And it's almost like that journaling thing you were talking about, like actually walk through what is the worst possible thing that will happen. And if you can get yeah. to that conclusion of like, well, it's probably not that bad. Let me just try letting go for a second. That will usually kick you off on the journey. And that's how it was Absolutely. for me, right? It's painful to be like, I have to get past my fear and be like, I'm going to let go. And, but then it's like, what's the worst thing that happens? I don't go to church on Sunday anymore for a while. I I read different books than I've normally read, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, sure. actually, um, this isn't so bad. And mm-hmm. and that lets the process begin. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but that's kind of where my mind yeah, goes. Yeah, I think that's great. Right. Yeah. I think that's all great. I would add just one other thing uh, that I, I kind of remembered as I was even asking the question. I, I, I ended up giving this advice to a lot of people. Uh, once again, I'm, I, I'm painting myself as like an anti-evangelist that just let people away from the church. But I know, I know, I do, I do my best. But I did give this. I gave this advice to a lot of people, and it, it, it comes from my own experience. But I often would say, you know, examine the things that already make you uncomfortable about mm. your belief system. Cause that's usually where the conversation starts, right? Yeah. If someone is already at the point of saying, well, well, what do I do? I, I feel like there's something about the narrative that was given to me that, that I don't want to live into. Usually if you're at that point, there's already things that, that you're inwardly, you're like, wait, what? I don't know about that. And Oftentimes when it is a narrative that's handed to you, you're told not to do that. Yeah. So sometimes it's as simple as just, you know, flipping that switch and saying, Hey, lean into that a little bit. This thing never made sense. Well, figure out what would make sense or figure Mm -hmm. out, you know, what people have to say about it. And maybe you'll find someone who says something that you're like, that's exactly what I was looking for. And maybe you'll find that there's nothing that says it. And this is something that you just have to leave behind. But I yeah. think that often it starts there and, and there's there's a basic response to a lot of this stuff that that I think is very telling. And I think I've I've told you the story, Mike, before that there was I I distinctly remember we're kind of fixating on on a Christian upbringing. Uh, uh, this is ours. Yeah. 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 A conservative Christian upbringing, which I think both of us experienced. So, so that's why. Sorry that we're locked into our own culture. Uh, but at any rate. And I, so I remember being handed when the first time that this whole doctrine was was painted for me of the dichotomy of heaven and hell, right? From a from a traditional conservative Christian standpoint, I remember as a kid, as a twelve year old or a thirteen year old, thinking to myself, "That doesn't sound right. That sounds real bad. I do not like anything of that." And what followed was five or six years of being told, well, no, 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 you don't understand it, right? Uh, you, you, you don't see, 
you don't see it in quite the right way. You need to change your thinking to match this. And then eventually the deconstruction started when I finally stopped making the effort to conform myself to that ridiculous belief and started thinking, well, maybe there's something wrong with that belief. Mm. Maybe there's something about that that doesn't match what I think the world, how I think the world actually works. Uh, So, yeah. 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 There's a cool, why you were talking. I mean, I, I relate to that so much to be clear. Um, I mean, I went to a church that said I didn't believe in Jesus, if I believed in dinosaurs. And I remember just being like, that doesn't sound right. And that, that it, it it's dumb. Right. And yeah, you said, <laughs> I is. just saw Jurassic park last week, guys. And, and it's, what's cool about deconstruction. And I think what we always have to remember, which is kind of what you're like, the outcome of what you're getting at is that there's always reconstruction afterwards. And yeah. you know, that we don't just commit surgery to remove organs. We have to replace it with something. And there was a metaphor. I don't know if it was Rob Bell. It honestly might have been the liturgist. This might be just the liturgist podcast now. I don't know. Hey, welcome to the liturgist. Um, <laughs> but we're they were talking. Get sued now. Yeah, right. They were talking about um, the process of deconstruction and reconstruction with the metaphor of like you have an apartment with all this furniture. You know, it's and this is your belief system. And it's like that's the hell, the eternal hellfire couch of constant conscious torment over there. There's the heaven is full of angels sofa over here. There's the bookshelf of prayer and meditation and all these different things. And what deconstruction is, is taking those things out of the apartment. But it doesn't have to mean that they don't come back. What it really means is that you get to kind of pick and reorient what does or reshape what does so that it's your own. Because it's like there, there is a good news that I think a lot of people who go through deconstruction need to hear, which is like, just because you're taking this apart doesn't mean it's going to be gone from your life. It's just going to mean it's actually yours when you get to choose that it gets to come back in. Right. Hmm. The whole conscious torment thing, that sofa is not coming back in the apartment. The prayer bookshelf, it's going to come back in in there. I'm going to get to reclaim it and I'm going to get to actually use it for what it's supposed to be. Right. The, the, death and resurrection of Jesus, the narrative of, of that being what life is that gets to come back in and I'm going to find myself in it now because I've chosen to bring it back into the apartment. Right. And I just think there's something cool about that. Right. I think it's a, there's something exciting about getting to rebuild and be, not, realizing that not everything that you take out for a season isn't going to find its way back um, in a good way. So I don't know if that makes sense, but that was kind of what I was thinking about as you said that where it's just like, yeah, get the stuff that doesn't make any sense out of the apartment for a while. And then if you want to, and it means something to you, and you long for it, bring it back and see how you can reshape it or reposition it or make it your own. Thank you guys so much for listening as we have worked our way through Knives Out. Uh, I think one of my favorite movies of the last few years. I hope Mike agrees. Yeah, and we it. sincerely hope you guys have enjoyed listening. We have a final question we've each prepared for the other person 
Before we get to that, we wanted to say that in the next episode, we're going to go back a little bit. We're going to talk about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, all-time comedy classic, maybe totally misunderstood, I think was we kind of hinted at when we were talking about it a second ago. Uh, but we'll see. First, though, we have final questions. Uh, Mike, why don't you go ahead? So, John, um, you and I are interesting people in the sense of we both handle some crises really well. And then there are sure. certain crises that we don't handle well. So I'm yeah. really curious. Are thinking about you as a person, mm-hmm. is there a point in Harlan's plan that you would absolutely fall apart if you were Marta? Uh, yes. I real quick. I, I did really appreciate, like again, playing with perspective when she couldn't remember if he told her before or after the oh, statue. Yeah, great. Uh. Mine, though, would have been, I think, before that. I think leaving the house <laughs> Climbing would have out already the window. been an issue. You're like, ah, this well, is a lot of work. I'm like, ah, this is really hard. Why don't we just turn ourselves in? I actually, really, for me, like, when she had to leave the house and call attention to the time, and she did it perfectly. She's like, oh, my gosh, it's almost midnight. I would leave the house and be like, hey, Walt, what time is it? And he'd look at me and be like, you're wearing a watch. And I'd be like... <laughs> So it's midnight. It's midnight. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye. At 12 p.m. Yeah. Or 12 a.m. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be, that was a little bit weird. You start quoting uh, like poems. You're like, <laughs> the clock strikes midnight. <laughs> What's wrong with you? How odd. <laughs> They're all like, I think Marta's The witching hour. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it, it, it would fall apart pretty quickly for me. What about you? Could you, I, I, I have faith in you. You'd pull off at least a lot of it. So I have two different converging thoughts. One yeah. thought is I'd walk in, see him with his throat slit and just be like, Oh, what the hell? And then just like yeah. vomit. And then it would just be yeah. ruined. Like, uh, I don't really like blood and I certainly don't like death or dead bodies. So I might've just fallen <laughs> apart there. I'm not going to lie. Um, yeah. another part as I was watching it is I would be the person who'd forget where to part the car. And then sure. I'd be, once I realized it, I would kick myself so hard and be so stuck in my own head that it would eventually just like tear me apart. And I just confess like yeah. that small miss would just drive me insane. And then Actually, I'd be like, I, I can't yeah. handle it. Also quick shout out to Marta. Some of the best quick thinking in any movie ever. I would not have been able to play off the tape like that either. Yeah. Where she, with the detectives all standing there, Screws up the tape, says, okay, well, I'll grab it, puts it in her bag, and then probably, like, dist- somehow ruins it later. That's Magnets. good stuff. She gets I the have, magnet. I couldn't have. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I yeah. couldn't have done that. Are I you know. kidding me? It's great. It's Anyways. great. Immigrant cool. well, ingenuity. My question, <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, my that, question. That, <laughs> that was rough. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little rough. Uh, you kind of, I don't know if you hinted at this before, but you mentioned before the chair of knives. Mm -hmm. This is a very different question for me and you because I live by myself and you live with a wife and a daughter Mm. and a dog. If you if someone said, I will give you that chair of knives, but they stipulate you have to have it out in your house where and in a relatively public spot where people coming over to see you would see it very quickly. Would you would you be on? Would you be there for that? Because that's a no brainer for me. Oh, yeah. I, w- I would put that thing on my front porch. Yeah. I mean, That'd be awesome. Jo- my house has a sword rack in it, and we have a daughter. So, 
Um, I guess I forgot that. I think know, the chair knife or the knife chair is maybe a little it's just on more brand. dangerous. It's just on brand. Okay. I mean, it's just, but um, yeah, I can already see that being one of those things where I'm like, I come home and I'm like, honey, I got something. And it's just like a two ton box that people <laughs> are moving in. And then I'm just going to try. I'm like overconfident and arrogant enough to believe I'll be able to talk my way out of it. <laughs> like, yeah. And that I'll get to keep it. I probably won't just going to be honest. Um, but I would but, b- tell myself, I would believe the false narrative that this is going to work out great. Yeah. You would have to hold on to it for long enough to have a conversation where you intimidate someone else by saying, Oh yeah. First week, right? First week. Yeah. I'm inviting someone as out like as, over. It's <laughs> like, Oh, just have a seat. Do you need coffee or anything? They're Come like, on uh, in. Uh, no. <laughs> just and you're like, great. You sit down. And the... <laughs> so let's talk. Oh my God! Well, so my, about uh, about your uh, <laughs> strategic objectives for this quarter at the church. Let's talk about how you're doing. <laughs> how how long have you had that chair? Don't, don't worry, worry about, about it. my chair. Yeah, don't you worry have bigger. About it. According to my paper, you have bigger things to be worried. About. <laughs> you have far bigger concerns than my chair. That would be amazing. Yep. Well, Mike, it. as always, thank you so much for the conversation, and thank you all for listening. Once again, this has been This Film Could Be Your Life. Uh, my name is Jonathan Devine. I'm joined by Mike Overstreet. We'll see you guys next time. See ya. say see you which is not accurate i said see ya that makes it a lot better